Thank you, William, for inviting me. It's my great pleasure to continue the ongoing story of me and potency and wind. I've been talking about these things for, for quite a while. I, I feel that there's some sort of resolution happening here. Um, it may not take us all where we think we're going to go. Um, I think it follows on very nicely from what Karen was saying. In some ways, I'm throwing things back a bit. She was talking about how medical knowledge is generated. I'm talking about looking for the reasons how, but also why is medical knowledge generated. And what I have to say has, has bearing, I think, on what Karen was looking at, the ideas behind witchcraft, behind medicine. So I'm really pushing things quite far back. In my research amongst the Khoisan people of Southern Africa, I've been looking primarily at medicine, and I keep being thrown back to the environment. The environment always came up as explanations for why things happened. And my most recent question has been, can I use these ideas that I found amongst the Khoisan to actually address profound questions? Um, can I use this African medicine to understand the origins of medicine more broadly? And I've been drawn to this as a, it's a very large question. But there's a lot of reasons why I've been drawn to it. Southern Africa is increasingly being pointed to as the seat of the origins of mankind. The fossil record is going back to Southern Africa. Ritual worship. In the Sidilo Hills in Botswana, they found this uh, large carving of a python head, they think. They think this might be the origins of ritual worship. Shaman sitting behind this big snake, snake worship. Symbolism. In Blombos Cave, they found a, a little piece of rock with cross-tatched markings on it. They think this, again, might be the origins of symbolism. The Bushman healing dance. The paintings that are found in southern Africa, one of the largest collections of uh, rock art in the world, reveal Bushman he what they think of as Bushman healing dances that are very similar to the healing dances that are going on now and have persisted for millennia. And the reasons they use, uh, or the explanations behind the dancing, come back to ideas of potency. There's also arguments for the origins of ecstatic religion amongst the Bushmen. As they're dancing, they're looking at their bodies, and all of a sudden their bodies are doing something else. There's an objectivization. There's, what's this in me? What's going on? Um, so Bradford Keeney has been working on material around that. And then there's, there's work from Chris Knight and Camilla Power talking about Oki use as a cosmetic manip manipulation of menstrual signals and the origins of symbolism. And then, of course, hunter-gatherer studies, the Bushmen, uh, a lot of the people that came to it came from a background of primatology. Now, of course, post-Kalahari debate, sometimes it makes people a little bit nervous, but it's, it's historical now, the Kalahari debate. Things have moved on a lot. Uh, people have come up with very sophisticated explanations for continuity and change amongst the Bushmen. So what I'm arguing for is a persistence in the way people think, the way people act within given environments. Now, this isn't an absolute repetition. There's nothing fossilized. There's nothing cold in this. This is an active, creative process. So... Here I have a, a basic outline of Khoisan treatments. Now, all of these, I would say the roots of them can be explained back to ideas of potency. What we have so far, ideas of potency have been brought forward uh, around the healing dance. So I want to start explaining what potency is all about. 
My basic understanding of potency juggles problems uh, that have been arising when people talked about mana amongst Polynesians. Mana is not a thing, uh, it's a quality, but in certain contexts it becomes substantivized. Potency is a quality which makes particular consequential things happen. I use the word consequence to emphasize an alertness and attention required when one lives in deeply rural life, reliant on personal and community skills and knowledge, and living close to the margins of survival. So I'm saying that people have to be aware, they have to be alert, living in their environments, and this draws them to certain sorts of things that they have to just build into their day-to-day -day lives. Now this is as relevant to any of us living in Oxford now, crossing a road, buses, surviving a nightclub. It's just, we have to be culturally alert, but this is based deep within us. Uh, it's just our way of negotiating the world. So there's nothing essentially special about the Bushmen, it's just their orientation. So to date, Khoisan literature is uneven in its understanding of potency. It's mostly thought of as a supernatural power, but a substantive one, perhaps like electricity, that is held in certainly apparently, certain apparently unrelated things and operated in the healing dance. Ideas of connection through power are recognized, but what is potency? Why is it found where it is? Why is it found in these things up here? Uh, how does it connect things together? So, this is a typical list of things that the Bushmen will say is potent. And they will say, well, this is why I'm using my medicine, because it's potent. It's got ostrich in it, it's got eland. Um, so I'm pushing it, I'm saying, why, why? So here's a picture of a healing dance. Now this picture, they're very hard to date, but possibly thousands of years old. Now, the Bushmen dance, they feel the sensation at the bottom of their, bottom of their back, it, a boiling sensation is described, that fire comes up their spine, it explodes in their head, they fall over, they start seeing um, animals, they go into this trance-like state, their limbs start shaking. The idea is that potency is being shot down. This is a divinely inspired potency. It's shot by arrows into them. They become full of potency. Then they fire arrows at each other, or they flick potency at each other, and they pull arrows out of each other. So there's this circulation of healing potency that goes around. Sick people in the gathering will have this potency put into them and have their illness pulled out using potency. So potency is found in many things. The blood, in particular, is a very potent thing. This, again, another piece of rock art, thousands of years old. But that's uh, up in the top there. You can see blood pouring out of the nose of a therianthropic figure. It's a half-man, half, I think, maybe a lion. Um, the potent blood is strongly associated with potency. Now, as the potency drips out of him, it messes up things that are ordered. Potency is dangerous. It's good and it's bad. It makes things happen. And as it spills out, it's spilling down onto the backs of Eland, which are very significant animals. Here we have a representation of flow. Those are Eland. And the bird at the top, you can see this line, this dotted line leading to the Eland nose. And then there's a chain flowing down through the Eland. So this idea that certain animals are potent at certain times yet this thing flows, there's danger, there's excitement, there's something about them, something special. And that's as far as the arguments go. Why does it flow? What is this thing that's flowing? So, ideas of potency lie in working with the world in ways that achieve relatively predictable outcomes. Although things of power are dangerous, 
One must always work carefully and allow for the unpredictable presence in life, the trickster presence in life. Potency is the divine gift of power found in something else that can affect you. It is the dangerous or beneficial qualities of things in certain situations. Parts of those things, like animal skin, urine or blood, can bestow those qualities. In people, both illness and a gift of ability, like the ability to heal, can be conferred by rubbing in dirtiness, the scrapings from your skin or the sweat from under your armpits. Like other peoples, Khoisan use the familiar to explain the unfamiliar, and ideas of potency flow come out of day-to-day experiences of life, including flowing smell, the wind blowing and flowing, arrows moving from you to your prey, the tracks of animals, even conversation flowing amongst people. The breath of life is the ultimate God-given gift. It equates to your wind, your smell, and it's linked to your vocalised words. So your smell carries you and the consequences of encountering you. Your words also carry consequences. Your smell is potent. It draws or repels. In a hunting context, wind and smell are crucial to one's success. And, you know, this sounds very romantic, but um, as I've said on a number of occasions, when you're actually out in the bush, you... It, it, it struck me walking through some very elephant-rich areas, lion-rich areas. You do have to think of this stuff all the time. Your life does depend on it. Now this sounds, you know, it sounds he's talking about Africa that doesn't exist anymore. It's day-to-day. It's nothing special. It's just what it's about. People don't think about it. They don't factor in the wind. But all the time they're saying, where are the animals? Where am I? Where's the smell? At this sort of subconscious level. Um, so potency medicine bestows the quality of the animals. The, the ostrich is a strong, healthy bird. The eland is powerful. Both are very significant medicines. The eland has a particularly rich set of attributes that lend it a potent polyvalency. So, what eland mean to the bushman? Well, there's a whole uh, there's a list here of things that distinguish the eland. Meeting an eland is an experience. Something can happen out of the experience. You can get fed. You've got the beautiful fat from the dewlap. You can watch this creature, which is standing about this high, jump um, over 15, 20 feet from standing. You can hear it as it comes through the bush. Its ankles click. Um, This animal is an extraordinary animal. It has an impact on their lives. And that's why I'm arguing that it's potent. It's particularly potent. So potency flows in the wind. It flows down a track, thinking about what's familiar again. There's a sense in which animal tracks are alive until they're blown away. If the track is there, the creature is attached to you at the end of it, and you are attached to the other end. You can play with the track to affect the animal or person on the end. Uh, This goes back to witchcraft, comes back to playing with footsteps. The other person is on the end of that track. When you're hunting an animal, the bushman will say, you can feel it inside you, you can feel the bristles on your back. You get a burning sensation in your forehead. You become the animal as you move down the track. When the track's gone, the animal's not there. It doesn't mean anything to you. It's, it's gone. Now, in some healing amongst the Damara, if you're healing someone who is, um, who is too close to you, uh, say, I'm a healer and I want to heal my sister and I can't touch her, they'll lie her down on the sand and I'll draw a line from her with a little blob on the end, and I will stick my potency into the end of it, and it follows down this line in the sand and goes into her. 
So again, using the familiar to explain the unfamiliar. Potency flows when the hunter shoots arrows. The poison works in his absence. His existence is bearing on the animal, despite him having left the kill site. That is why he must be careful as he, he carries on back, back to the village. He can't talk about the animal. He can't go back and say, I've shot this wonderful Elan. The Elan knows that he's saying that. And the Elan will disappear. It will get up and walk away. When animal and plant medicines enter the body, they smell out the sickness. I mean, obviously there's not going to be any biomedical explanations coming out. So why do these things work in the body? Well, people say it smells it out, like we smell out sickness normally. So when these things are inside the body, the piece of animal, the piece of plant, it's smelling its way through the body, and it's bringing to bear all that that piece is, its form and its function, its colour, its size, its shape. The, the Khoisan will think of it in terms of what, what this size and shape and colour can do to this thing inside your body. Do they go together? So what is used and in what context comes down to knowing what goes together and what happens. A lot of Khoisan talk about uh, looking at a fence post and you see an agarmid lizard on top and you'll see the rain clouds. Those things go together. They'll say the lizard calls the rain because the lizard has the rain in it. It has the rain spirit. The uh, a millipede crawling also has the rain. Millipedes are there when it rains. The tortoise is there. The scorpions come out when the wind blows. It has the wind in it. These things are, are what go together. So when there is something to do with the rain, you will think about something to do with the lizard. And you will work with either end of that equation. So what is known to go together and what happens together reveals a relationship which is less causal than connected. The ecological psychologist Gibson got near the idea when his education of attention, he started talking about an education of attention. This is um, things offer affordances as you go through life. He was talking in terms of light being refracted off stationary objects, and this thing can offer you opportunities. Now Ingalls has criticised this. He says, well, this is a very static view of life. We don't just walk through and there are objects. We're flowing through life. Objects don't just sit there. We're entangled in these things. We participate in the world. We share in the world. And this is, this is far closer to the way I'm thinking. It also strikes me that it's telling us something that suddenly sounds familiar in, in terms of quantum physics. You know, ideas that we're not meant to stray into. Um, the world takes on a certain meaning in the co-presence of people. In our presence, we are part of this unfolding that we experience. There's also a very strong sense of flow and connection in the Khoisan world because boundaries are fluid. As the boundaries of the Zhongtuan territory, they have Ngores, and that's your hunting territory. It's not fixed. You can go into another hunting territory and look for food, look for water, you can walk through it. Uh, these are fluid boundaries, and so their thinking contains fluid boundaries. They're fluid in their thinking of form and time. Here are some, again, pictures of possibly thousands of years old. These are uh, from the Cedarberg and from the Drakensberg of South Africa. These are therianthropic forms. They're half man, half people. People still talk about uh, someone... I've seen, a lot of people say, I've seen someone change into a lion. Uh, yes, of course people can. People change into trees. Uh, we've got someone up there who... Uh, this, these are things that it said uh, people of the past saw when they went into trance-like states. I think that particularly spooky-looking one up the top is there's something of the scorpion in there, uh, changing into a bird, very significant. And here you can't really see it, but there's, 
the human legs moving into the form of a lion. Again, a very significant animal. So people change to animals, animals to people, and even to plants. If an animal behaves strangely, if he's in the wrong place, the wrong time, this snake suddenly turns over and looks at you, you know what's normal, and this is abnormal. And your explanation is going to be, well, there could well be one of my ancestors inside this snake. The dead are present in dreams, they're present in the healing dance in the dark of the fire. These things are fluid, things that are dead and past are still living. In a related sense, animals are connected to the human social world. As in so many contexts, birds can tell you things that are going on far away, things that are going on close to home, but yesterday or tomorrow. As the idea of an education of attention reveals, potency is underpinned by a way of thinking about the world. Now, previously I've spoken about this as a, a listening disposition in a world of possibilities. Potency is symptomatic of flexible, memorate knowledge, of knowledge that is low status and working outside the authority of the written word. What counts is what one knows from personal experience, from sensual engagement, from feelings, dreams, and observations. With this listening demeanor, the body becomes a signaling device, and body sensations and actions are evidence of the potency within them. The abdominal cramps, the boiling sensation at the bottom of the spine when the mmm boils up and goes to the head, the spasmodic shaking of the limbs, all these are evidence of the substantiation of potency. In fact, I think very much in terms of the equivalence between potency and medicine. Both of them are agents of change. Uh, applying potency is all about being able to make something change. So if we were to look at the archaeological record about the origins of medicine, I think these are all things that should be brought to bear. If you find a piece of ostrich shell, if you're looking at ochre, any artefacts, any what you might think of as jewellery, adornment, I think these are the sorts of things that it should be factored into it. It comes down, but just down to ways of thinking. Now, I was reflecting on medicine in its broader context. How does this relate to older European ideas of medicine? How can I generalize out from this? Now, the Oxford English Dictionary prevaricates over the continuity between old and non-biomedical definitions of medicine in Europe and medicine as it appears in post-1750s non-European ethnography. There seems to me, though, clear continuity. Both contexts are about the power of perfume or the power of a charm to repel, attract, or negotiate a relationship. It's all about medicine as an agent of transformation, not about whether one believes in magic and the supernatural. The earlier European material, and much ethnographic material, seems to reveal shared narratives about the how the world is connected and how one works in the world. I think you can see these ideas are old. From, from 1200, we have what might seem familiar ideas, but at the same time, you know, not going to surprise any of you here, medicine also meant a cosmetic, a poison, a poison which is either a poison or a medicine, if, depending on its potency, a potion, an elixir. But interestingly, the Oxford English Dictionary also includes um, some ethnography, but it's all North American Indian. And I think this is because of when the, the dictionaries were put together, that's what was, uh, was prevalent. And it's, it's got a very interesting example. It starts talking about uh, beaver medicine. And this just really struck me. I don't know how many of you are familiar with castorium. It's, it was news to me that just behind the beavers, uh, well, in the inguinal region, he has, strictly speaking, they're not glands, but there are these little things that leak out this 
this castor, um, which is a foul-smelling substance. Uh, it's yellow, and it's very nauseous-making, very bitter, apparently. Um, it's also used as a uh, food flavoring for raspberry and vanilla. It's stuck in cigarettes to make them taste good. It's in Givenchy Number no. 3 and Chanel perfume. Um, but for me, this, people are using this because it's potent. It has a potency. And this just, for me, spoke of uh, the anal gland of the arbors, which is something used very commonly amongst the, the Bushmen. Um, also, it reminded me of David Kraper, the, uh, the head of the Tamali San. He said that at a healing dance, hasn't done it for a while, he used to get a polecat and wipe the bottom of the polecat up and down him before the dance. And this, this gave extreme smell. And it was all about smell. It was making him potent. It was making him alive. Things would happen. He's becoming dangerous. He's becoming liminal. I think there's another thing in here. Um, the idea of good and bad medicine. Immediately, this, this takes us to the larger context. So, out of the Khoisan material, I get a sense of different ways of being in the world. One can work and one can play. Work is to do what must be done. It's a serious business requiring knowledge and skill. Play is a dangerous thing. There's something liminal in it. Spirits may play with you, but you work with spirits. They hold danger. Alcohol plays with you. It's safer to work with potency than to play with it. Further to this, though, there's another category, working nicely. Now, this is something that's come out of my, my work with the 19th century Han uh, material and the Kumani material. All the time, this word nicely was cropping up. Uh, this, is, this is a slide which just quotes pieces from this late 19th century uh, Bushman material from the Cape. To do things nicely is to move from play to work. It involves care and application. It implies skill and slowness. Now, this really struck me when you were making fire. And, um, I apologize to people who have heard me talk about this before. But when you have to make fire, when the chips are down and you're out there, this is, a, this is an important thing. If you get it wrong, things happen. Now, making fire, it's an extraordinary experience. You have to gather your tinder very carefully. You have to gather your fire sticks. You have to prepare yourself materially, but you have to prepare yourself otherwise. And then you have to apply yourself. And it takes a tremendous uh, combination of skill and being relaxed. If you're intense in the process of, with your bow stick or your hands, this thing's not going to happen. The sticks are going to break, you're going to tire yourself out, things wobble, and all of a sudden, you've tried it three times, four times, you're running out of tinder, it's broken. You're, you're suddenly down to an incident pit, it's not going to work. To make this work, you have to do it slowly, calmly, you have to do it nicely. Now, looking at these quotes of nicely, you know, nicely, we can be very casual about the word nicely. But the fox avoiding the dog nicely. He's applying all his skills, everything built into him. It's moving, thinking, dynamic, contingent experience to avoid the dog. Hunters chasing a springbok. They know exactly when to divide. They know how to come round the animal. Uh, there's so much built into this sort of casual phrase. Doing things nicely is a way of working. Doing it nicely seems to engage with the world in a way that can strongly encourage predictability and creative control. I think there's a pertinent crossover between these ideas of, of good medicine and doing it badly. 
I hope that there's, a, there's good medicine in the room. You know, I hope now that we're, we can work nicely together. If we don't work nicely together, the conversation breaks, breaks down. Again, it's this sort of creative way of being together. Conversations, they're potent things. If you're speaking badly together, these conversations break. Things separate. And you can't afford to do that in these, these communities where you live at a fairly critical level. Um, like being here, really. Uh, so doing things nicely is an aesthetic extension of work that speaks of fluid effectivity. The unconscious response to the wood of the carpenter of the movements of the hunter as the wind changes, of the sensitivity and interpretation of the pianist. It's a very creative space, and I feel things come out of this application. And I, I just wonder if doing it nicely profoundly contributes to the creativity of culture. Is culture a combination of work and aestheticism? And this is where my, my thinking goes back to medical orange, origins more broadly. And this, was, this is my last slide. So medicine seems to me to provide an extraordinary opportunity to reflect upon the borders of nature and culture and even the process of evolution. In 1980, I don't know how many, looking at you, I think quite a few people could remember 1980, um, Carl Sagan said, the cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or will be. We are made of star stuff. We are a way of the cosmos to know itself. Now compare this with uh, 1973, seven years before, Jacob Brunowski, The Ascent of Man. Man is a singular creature. He has a set of gifts which make him unique among the animals, so that, unlike them, he is not a figure in the landscape, he is a shaper of the landscape. Now to me, Brunowski smacks of extreme hubrism. Can we be shapers of the landscape? Uh, that our culture and our, our uh, medical culture, can it be a buffer against evolution? Uh, this just, just doesn't make any sense to me if we're made of star stuff. Culture's made of star stuff. Medicine's made of star stuff. In what way can we change the run of the universe? I don't see that we can step aside from this. You know, we can, we can joke that off. We can be a bit banal, say that the, you know, it's banal, big fluffy stuff. But it's not. These, I think these are important questions. So let's think about what medicine might mean in an evolutionary sense. The idea of, of medicine as the universe healing itself, that doesn't make any sense. That takes us nowhere. So what about success? Medicine as success, this is cost-benefit. One could think of medicine as increasing procreation and reproduction. But what does that actually mean? Greater numbers greater numbers of things, greater biomass. Is this the numbers of termites? Is this North Atlantic krill? Is this the Nordic spruce? Are these things what success, are successful on Earth? The idea of competition makes no sense in ab absolute terms. So why, why numbers? It seems to be a numbers game. So I want to think about medicine in two ways. First of all, it does have this ability to increase procreation, increase human numbers. It's increasing the human presence. The second, second way of thinking about it is if you're, if you're sick and you go to the doctor and you get given a pill, this pill won't take you back to the state that you were in before you got sick. It will take you to a different place. Um, now, that place looks like it's a familiar, healthy place. You get sick again, you go to the doctor again, you take another pill, 
Now he's got to take into account, or she has, all those pills you've had before. Your body is getting complicated. This is a complicated system. The more pills you take, the more complicated it becomes until there's a threshold at which it will break down. So I think the answers, I think all this is about information and complexity. On a recent uh, television series, there was, I'm sure some of you have seen it with um, Brian Cox on the cosmos. He referred to beautiful order, and I think he's got it the wrong way around. Order is a snapshot. It's complexity that is beautiful. So I've been thinking about the second law of thermodynamics, um, as you do. Everything goes to complexity. Now, unless we, you know, unless we want to stand up and say the second law of thermodynamics, is, I don't believe in it. If everything goes to complexity, well, I think this can tell us something about potency. On this television program, he had a very good way of explaining entropy, which I think will help. He had, uh, it was set in the Namibian sands. He had a sand castle and he had a pile of sand. He said, if the wind blows, uh, what's it most likely to do? It's most likely to make this pile of sand. Because those grains of sand can be made to go together into this lump in such a myriad of ways. They can twist and turn in this lump. Uh, they are more likely to make a lump because there are so many possibilities in there. Now, to make a sandcastle, the wind is not going to blow the sand up and make a sandcastle because there's a limited number of ways that sand can stick together. So that sandcastle is a low entropy state. It's less complex than this lump of sand where everything can sit together in so many different ways, which is a high entropy state. The human form is low entropy. It's ordered. But the overall exchange with the the environment is net high entropy. Increasing numbers is a way of increasing complexity. Life, including culture and medicine, is a way of moving towards high entropy. And this is where I think aesthetics has a role. Doing things nicely is working with complexity. The male humpback whale sings for 24 hours in a row. And he has, his, he has his cycle of singing, and it changes. Uh, it's, it's a creative process. Now, sometimes whales get together, and they will sing the same tune. They'll all come, the males will come together. They, they don't think this has anything. There's no proof that this has anything to do with reproduction. And these males will sing the same tune until one of them changes it. And then they all start singing the next tune. And they'll sing it for a few weeks, maybe maybe a few months, and then one changes it, and it all changes again. Why does it change? So, just to end, I think it changes because cultural evolution includes aesthetics. It seems all about cultural evolution being information and complexity. Now, the chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, had something to say about that. He said, the creator made creation creative. So there we go. Thank you very much.